Okay, hello, welcome to this week's Tez podcast. I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Ed Doll. Hi, Ed. Hello, hello. Eddie Bloom. Hi, Eddie. Hello. And Charlotte Sanctuary. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Um, so we've got a bit of school funding stuff this week, um, but this is my favourite week of the year. It's when the Academy accounts have to get published. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Sexy everyone. Time. Sexy time. Absolutely. <laughs> but big news story, um, our highest paid Academy leader is even more highly paid now. Um, congratulations, Sir Dan Moynihan. Half a million pounds. Half a million pounds, yeah. So, I mean, the accounts, this is, so Dan Harris, Dan Moynihan, sorry, leader of the Harris Federation, his salary went up by at least 20 grand, but when you add in pensions and national insurance contributions, it could be up to, what, 565,000 pounds? His salary isn't on its own, isn't it? Not that much shy of 500 grand, is it? It's getting up there. It's getting up there. Even um, without contributions, he's must be what 460 or something. Up to 460, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do we think? Value for money? <laughs> well, look. I mean, there is an argument, isn't there, that there's an incredibly high-performing um, academy chain. It's very good results. Very tricky circumstances. Many of the schools are in. Um, I don't think it has a score which is anything less than good or outstanding. No. Um, its results are amazing. He's worth it, as Lord Harris said on the Today programme only a couple of months ago. Yeah. Like a L'Oreal um, <laughs> shampoo, because he's worth it. I've got to say, on Twitter, not many people were saying he's worth it last <laughs> night. Um, <coughs> I mean, I guess the awkward thing is it, it comes at a time when teachers are seen their salary increases yeah. capped for yet another yeah. year and I'm sure Harris staff have not been getting you know the, the percentage that, that Sir Dan got I mean when you put it in that context does it seem a bit more awkward or it's a different difficult sell isn't it especially when you've got all the emphasis on the moment on v, VC pay in the university sector just generally I think there's less acceptance of these very very high salaries regardless really of whether you can prove that or, or, you know, argue that they're worth it on balance. Um, it's just a very difficult sell in the current climate. The, the, the way to justify it, or the way lots of people would try and justify it, is about the market. You know, he's paid what he's worth. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, Dan is a massive outlier. I mean, he's paid mm. loads more than his nearest counterpart. Mm. I mean, by like <coughs> 150 grand or something, yeah. or 200 grand. So, it, it, you know, within the context of the so-called so market, it doesn't work. And looking through the academy accounts, are quite well, a few of them anyway that I've seen have said, we've done a benchmarking exercise based on other multi-academy trusts and we've looked at what they say. I'd love to see what Harris's benchmarking report says <laughs> because it would be a graph, sort of, you know, sedan right at the top of, of the right-hand corner and everyone else much further down. But they obviously do feel it's justified in some way. Another question for me is that in terms of value for money is the question I would then put to Dan would be, would you do it for 300 grand, Dan? Mm. And I hope he'd say yes. In which case, pay him 300 grand. Yeah. I mean, is he saying, I'll only do it for half a million quid? In which case, fire it. <laughs> 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 really, isn't it? Um, I mean, and, th and there are, I mean, literally thousands of sets of Academy accounts have, have had to be on the Academy website this, uh, this week. I think yesterday was the deadline. Um, we saw deficits at some, we saw huge related party transactions where money's being paid to companies that are linked to trustees. Um, the other thing that I was interested in is a report came out from a, an accountancy firm who handled hundreds of academy accounts and they said that 
about 55% of Academy Trusts are now in deficit this year, and they say the system will basically could go insolvent in the next two or three years unless the government pumps in more money, just because the level of reserves are going so low and will get lower and lower and lower each year. Um, Charlotte, takes us on to your big piece on school funding. Yeah, so it looks at the fact in the magazine. that... In, in the, the magazine. Ma- yes. Yeah. So it's the fact that as everyone who know who's been following schools in any way over the past few years knows, um, schools have been saying that they're really struggling financially. Um, and but the fact is, when you look back at spending trends over the past few years, they're actually getting a lot, lot, lot more than they were certainly sort of 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And that's in real terms. So that takes into account inflation and it takes into account rising pupil numbers. So it's just looking at how you square those two things, really. You know, the fact that schools are facing pressures and there's, there's no, we're not questioning that at all. But where did the money go? What was it spent on? And why, why are schools now saying that they're in so much trouble when actually in real terms that they have got a lot more money? Um, and the well, answer... I've got to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's the answer? <laughs> well, I, it's, it's, not, it's not that simple, obviously. Yeah. But um, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, well, speaking to heads and unions and someone who was in the Treasury when a lot of funding was being pumped out in the sort of Blair Brown era. Um, Arguably some of the money was thrown at things which not everyone would agree was a great idea. Um, Things like SEL and personalised learning and stuff like that. But also most of the money was spent on staff and within that by far most of the money went on TAs or most of the increase went on, Mm. on teaching assistants. And that throws up the whole argument of whether whether it was worth it, whether it was a good investment, a good return um, for all, for all that money, uh, which is a pretty controversial area. <laughs> I, remember, I remember back in um, 2009, because um, some of us today have been around for a long <laughs> time. Um, 2009, the Institute of Education put out a report, huge macro study into the use of TAs. And it found, I mean, it was amazingly controversial at the time. This was after 12 years of significant funding increases. And as you said, most of that money had gone on TAs. And it found not that there was zero impact, but in fact there was a negative impact. Mm. Mm. TAs, having a TA in your classroom, on average, saw your kids get making less progress mm. than they were otherwise. Um, and that caused a huge amount of head scratching at the time. It was a big story. Mm. Um, I remember we splashed it when back in the days of being a newspaper. Um, and since then, there have been obviously any number of studies about you know, what is the best use of TAs. And I think a lot of schools now do use their TAs very wisely. And, um, the Education Endowment Foundation has done an awful lot of work on it. Um, but it's interesting to think that for a number of years, those increases that Charlotte was talking about were, 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 were in fact having a, a, negative, a negative impact, yeah. impact on results. And I think, as you say, there's been more research, and I think schools are probably getting better at knowing That's how to use them. Yeah, and absolutely. the EEF said in its, I think it was its annual report quite recently, last week maybe, that when it next updates its, its teach toolkit, it's going to, that will reflect the fact that schools are using them more effectively. And I think at the moment they've, they've got a progress rating of about one month's extra progress on average, and I, I think that's expected to go up slightly. So, I mean, it, yeah, it, it is the irony here that, that now schools know much more how to use them effectively 
These are the roles that are now being cut being cut yeah, yeah. because well, of the funding yeah. pressure. That, that is definitely yeah, right. Yeah. The other thing, just as a quick, quick postscript to note, which I know you talk about in your piece, I mean, it is worth remembering how desperately badly funded schools were before 1997. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. And that heads with long memories. I think you quote John Thomas, don't you? Yeah. Well, you know, we'll say, you know, the increase looks enormous, but back, back in the late 90s, the need was enormous. Mm. They were hugely underfunded. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of that increase has just been pulling schools up to where they probably should have been all along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the argument that's made um, by more than one person in the piece that it's not cutting back from a, a situation where schools were o being overfunded. It was they'd got up to a point where it was manageable and then their budgets were stripped back, uh, starting to be stripped back. So that's why it's, that's why it's so difficult. Yeah. I guess a move from one big challenge for schools there, another big challenge, of course, is teacher recruitment, teacher retention. There's no challenge. There's no... <laughs> Haven't you heard? <laughs> well, Tana said, this is, this is breaking news today, isn't it? The DfE have put out a report um, saying there's nothing to see here, <laughs> from what I understand. I mean, it is literally breaking as we, uh, as we came down to our TES studio. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the early headline seems to be... Um, Crisis, what crisis? Crisis, crisis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently the uh, vacancy rates are stable, the number of new, te new teachers joining professors are stable, and you should all go away and stop worrying. <laughs> now, the MPs on the Public Accounts Committee used different words, didn't they, <laughs> this week in their report? Slightly different. Uh, they said the government's approach was sluggish and incoherent, um, the disparate collection of small-scale interventions are inadequate, um, they should have been able to foresee the situation and take action to address it. I mean damning stuff there. I mean. There's a really interesting line in there talking about money as well, that by some estimates um, 15 times as much money is spent on trying to get new recruits as is spent on retaining teachers. And as most people, most heads would tell you the big problem isn't actually, I mean it is a problem with recruitment, but the big problem is with retention. Mm. So there's every year thousands of teachers leaving the profession and again you just wonder whether the focus has been on the wrong place in terms of spending money. Yeah. And if lots of schools at the moment are trying to or, or are saving on their staff bills by effectively older staff leaving, they're being replaced with younger, cheaper staff, well, that's, that can only work to a certain point. If there isn't that pipeline of people who are being yeah. recruited, then mm. that's, that's going to fall flat at some point as well. So the, the financial side and the, you know, the funding side and the recruitment side are definitely closely linked. linked, very yeah. linked, yeah, yeah. Now, Adi, I really want to talk about your feature here because I'd never heard of developmental language disorder until I read it, and now I think I really should have heard about it, and it sounds really, really important. That's basically where all of us are. Yeah. Um, I hadn't heard of it until I started working on the feature. Um, but yes, it, it's something that affects... Uh, more, children, more children have developmental language disorder than have autism, yeah. so it, it is something that is surprisingly common, um, but that people haven't heard of. It's an easy way to sum it up is then slightly reductive, as is always the way with these things. Um, but it's, it's called journalism. Yes, <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a form of verbal um, dyslexia. So that where dyslexic kids might be very happy expressing themselves verbally, but struggle with written language, kids with DLD will. Well, they're not entirely fine with, the, with written language, but what happens is someone talks to them and they can't process it properly and they will react in the same way to spoken language that dyslexic children react to written language. So 
what happens is you have children who are simply not understanding what's going on in school mm. and often they develop coping strategies and they develop ways to work around this so they slip under the radar um, so you will have children who don't understand what the teacher has told them to do but can look around and see what the other kids are doing and will always just be a beat or two behind everyone else that they will pause see what other people are doing follow their example but never really understand what's actually they've been asked to do. I think it's worth just noting quickly that, that this this subject is um, the cover feature mm. in today's magazine. Yes, and it's you know this is a very serious and long read that yeah. he's uh, absolutely undertaken. I mean, I, th I thought the way you or, or the analogy in the article about sort of when you half know a foreign language and you're listening to to people and you can't you grasp bits of it, but not enough. That, that was the very striking example I was given by Dorothy Bishop, who's the academic who's done a lot of work into this. Um, and she said, yes, it, it's in that way where you speak some words of a language. So, for example, if you understood the words for dog and boy and chase, and so you knew that people were saying a sentence involving a dog, a boy and some chasing, but you wouldn't know who was chasing it. Was mm. the boy chasing the dog? Was the dog chasing the boy? And you would have to listen really carefully to the context and try and guess and piece it together from the small bits that you could pick up from the sentence. And you're constantly doing that. And it's frankly it's just exhausting. And what happens is that you do then, because it requires, because understanding language requires constant alertness and constant effort, you just switch off and let it wash over you, which is something that you can do very easily with a foreign language. Yeah. You just go, okay, now I'm tuning out and this will, there will just be words around me. And that's exactly what it is with, with kids with DLD. We'll, we'll just stop, put through, through sheer exhaustion, we'll stop hearing it, stop putting in the effort. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's... What also happens is that the kids pick up enough language, again, to be able to pass. So you will have, for example, an eight-year-old who, who will be able to construct sentences and be able to speak and it's only when you analyze what they say that you realize they're incredibly simple sentences there are no clauses it is just you know, subject object verb yeah. full stop one after the other after the other something that someone along the lines when I was researching this feature said to me but said I shouldn't put in the article was that if you look at Donald Trump's tweets you might <laughs> draw certain conclusions about his language skills. Well, I mean, I think it, it's, a, it's a must read for classroom teachers, this one. I mean, I think it's a really, really important thing. And the second postscript, um, we're noticing one of the few organisations out there that's really done a lot of work on this, the Communications Trust, has just had its government grant of £600,000 withdrawn. Oh, <laughs> great. Well, on that bombshell... <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you very much for listening to the podcast um, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.